Okay, this morning, we are going to return to our journey through Acts, and once again, we're going to turn to Acts 2, 36 through 38, and then we'll also read our Lord's Great Commission to us in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. And we're going to read this out loud together, beginning with Acts 2, 36 through 38. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And now we're just going to, that's it. Okay, now we're going to read uh, Matthew 28. Remember, these are the Lord's final words to his disciples as a commissioning, uh, not unlike the commissioning that we just did. Let's read this together. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Thank you. Please be seated, and let's pray together. Lord, as we come before you in your word, uh, we just pray this morning that you would help us to understand this, this powerful expression of faith called baptism, what it means, what it doesn't, and how it informs our identity as believers. And I pray that we'd feel that power as we come into your text, the power of your Holy Spirit, translating that reality into the circumstances that cause us great concern in our lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you're visiting with us for the first time, and I know we have a few that are, uh, we have been considering this monumental day, this day of of Pentecost, the first moment in which the Holy Spirit comes powerfully upon the followers of Jesus Christ. You'll remember that the Holy Spirit moved in such a way that the disciples were able to proclaim the mighty deeds of God in, in languages they could not possibly have known, every language under the sun. So a crowd gathers, they're amazed uh, by these Galileans speaking in all these different languages, and some think that they must be drunk. So in order to speak to that misunderstanding and really to address the crowd with the, with the message of the gospel, Peter stands up and, and he proclaims a very powerful message. He sums up that message in the verse that we began with, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Luke tells, the thousands, uh, tells us that thousands who are standing there in the streets in Jerusalem, at that very moment... They are just cut to the heart. They are smitten with the conviction that Jesus Christ was the long-awaited Messiah, and they just crucified him. So they cry out asking, what shall we do? In response, Peter gives two mandates and two promises. The first mandate is to repent. We looked at that at depth last week. We saw that repentance essentially means you know, to turn around to change one's mind, to return to the Father. It is to accept personal responsibility for the condition that we're in. To snap out of the lie and self-delusion that has led us to run from God and to face the reality of our sin and its consequences. And it's always relational consequences. 
you know, our relationship with God, with, with, with each other, and even with ourselves. And then just turn back, turn back. And what we see from Luke 15, we, we looked at that, is just that the Father runs to us. He makes up the distance. All we need to do is simply turn around, and our debt is paid. We are reconciled to the, to the Father and fully restored. Now, this morning, we're going to examine the second mandate of what Peter says. He says, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. So it's both a mandate and the first promise. Now, most of you, most of you probably have been baptized. Some of you may have not. How, how many of you, just quickly raise your hand, how many of you have been baptized? Yeah, so a vast majority of the people in this room. Baptism is a universal practice for all Christians, uh, but it's also one of the most debated practices in the Christian church. My goal this morning is to boil baptism down to its most essential components to help you to understand some of the very perspectives of baptism and then to address why baptism continues to be an essential and vital component for those throughout the world who are convicted by the gospel and ask this question, what then shall we do? All right, so first, a little history of baptism. Uh, the first place in the Bible that, if you're reading the Bible, the first place in the Bible we actually see baptism happen in the way that you typically think of baptism, and I think of it, is in Luke 3 with John the Baptist. He's standing in the Jordan River, and he has a ministry of, of the baptism of repentance. So he's calling people to come, he's convicting them of their sin, and he's calling them to be baptized and in, in so doing, he's preparing the way for the Messiah. He says, I'm going to baptize you with water, but one who's coming is going to baptize you with, with fire in the Holy Spirit, right? The word baptize comes from the Greek word baptizo, which literally means to dip, immerse, or submerge. So John the Baptist is, you know, John the, the dipper, <laughs> right? John the, the immerser, John the, the one who, who puts you in the water and brings you back out again. And he immersed repentant people in the Jordan River. Uh, and, and whenever we think of baptism, that's a lot of, of what, what of, you know, if you're raised Baptist, that's exactly what you think of. Um, now, did baptism exist prior to the New Testament and John the Baptist? Yes, but it was different. According to the ancient Jewish Mishnah, Gentile converts to Judaism were required to wash themselves uh, in order to be purified or symbolically purified to enter into Judaism. Uh, the ritual purification was an ancient practice. And really, uh, if we look at what Peter says later in First Peter 3, he, he traces this concept of purification through water all the way back to Genesis. Let's look at that. First Peter 3, 18 through 22, he points all the way back to Noah. Here's what he writes. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. By the way, when we say he descended into hell in the creed, this is one of the passages that, that led the early church to that confession. He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So Peter helps us to tie the practice of New Testament baptism with Noah. Noah all the way back into Genesis. 
And the, the picture is that New, Baptist, New Testament baptism corresponds with what God did by saving Noah and his family through the flood. Now remember that the flood in the Old Testament represented God's judgment. God's judgment that was deserved by a very sinful and wicked generation. But God chooses to save through the waters by taking out the Noah's family and the animals and so on. Peter essentially says New Testament, New Testament baptism points to that, but it's different. And he qualifies the difference. The first difference is that the water of baptism is not as a removal of dirt from the body. Why does he say that? I mean, Noah, you know, being saved from the flood was not removal of dirt from the body. Now he's making sure that his Jewish audience doesn't think this is just more of the same. Uh, in Leviticus, there, there was a lot of teaching that was given uh, to the Israelites in regards to purification. I'm sure you're aware of that, many of you. Uh, the priest had to wash with water before presenting sacrifices in the tabernacle. Leviticus 15, God requires a man suffering from a bodily discharge of some kind to wash in living water and then present a sacrificial offering to the Lord to be cleansed and atoned for. So the washing that we see in the Old Testament was both practical, particularly as the Israelites were going through the desert. If somebody had an infection or disease or came into contact with, with blood or, or some kind of you know, discharge of some kind from the body, uh, they would need to wash <laughs> before they infected the entire camp. It was a very practical instruction, but it was also ceremonial, uh, representing just the stain of uh, being unclean before the Lord, both in body and spirit. And Peter's helping us to understand it's like that, but it's different. Um, so, Here's one way that you might could understand the Old Testament precedent for baptism. It'd be like the way that we think of a shower, right? We take a shower because we want to get clean and we want to feel clean, right? So even if you took a shower last night, maybe I'll still take a shower this morning. Why? Because I want to feel clean. Uh, there's, there's a reality of that ritual purification that was both practical and uh, symbolic of our cleanliness, our, our restored relationship before God. Now, I don't want to belabor the point here, but I want you to notice that occasionally in the Old Testament, that kind of sets up New Testament baptism, uh, the purification was required in living water. You'll, you'll see those words in the Old Testament, living water. That, that is literally what the, the Hebrew means. And of course, it's kind of thinking about running water, like water that comes in a river that's, that's moving, right? Because all of us have seen what happens if you have like a pool of water and it's really hot outside and there's no fresh water coming into it. What happens? Do you want to swim in that? No, not unless you have like a lot of chlorine, right? They didn't have any chlorine in the ancient world. So you didn't go purify yourself in a bunch of stagnant water. You, you wanted to purify yourself in, in living water, in running water, water that was moving, that had life. And so that, that concept of living water became a really important part of Jewish culture to the degree that they built lots of pools, uh, not lots, but, but several in different cities in, in Israel where there would be living water. Uh, and they were called mikvah, M-I-K-V-A-H. Um, so this was a regular part of, of Jewish purification, that you would go immerse yourself in the mikvah. You recognize probably the Pool of Siloam. You recognize that, that name from the Gospel of John where Jesus sent a blind man to, to go wash in that pool. The Pool of Siloam was fed by the Gihon Spring, so that was spring-fed through aqueducts. Um, and so that's how they kept living water available for the Jews to, to purify themselves. The Gospel of John also tells of Jesus healing a paralytic. 
in the pool of Bethsaida. If you remember that story, the, the tradition was that they believed that an angel would come and stir the water. And when the water was stirred, the first person to enter into that pool would be healed. So again, that the value of living water over water that was not moving or was not living was uh, very high for the Jews. You keep that in mind and consider the fact that Jesus refers to himself as living water. He says, I am living water. Uh, remember, he says that to the Samaritan woman in John 4. He also invited people to quench their thirst in him in John 7, where he proclaims, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So this imagery of water, and particularly living water, as both a physical purification and spiritual purification before the Lord. And then Jesus says, immerse yourself in me, right? So there's, there's power in all of this water imagery, and it contributes to what we think of when we think of New Testament baptism. One last notable difference between the practice of Old Testament purification and New Testament baptism is this. In the Old Testament rites of purification, uh, the, the imperative would be, go wash yourself. Go, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Go wash yourself in the pool of Bethsaida. Uh, it was something you did for yourself to make yourself right. right. In New Testament baptism, you can't do it yourself. You have to submit yourself to be baptized. So John is baptizing people. Uh, we have no reason to believe that Jesus baptized people, but his disciples did. Uh, and obviously, that is still the tradition. We are baptized. It's, it's something that's passive. It's done uh, to us and for us. We participate in it through submission. Uh, and that's a really big difference between Old and New Testament concepts of, of this purification. All right, now, what is the meaning of baptism? What does it mean? And in our text today, in Acts 2, 28, Peter says, Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. So in its most basic sense, when we undergo baptism, it marks our individual repentance and the forgiveness of our sins in the name of Jesus Christ. Why the name of Jesus Christ? Because Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. And if you go back to what First Peter said, that's exactly what he said. Baptism, he says, saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, that's authority, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So Peter is comparing Noah and the judgment of God, and Noah was spared through the water. He's pointing to the baptism. He says, you're going to be spared through baptism, through the water, through the name of Jesus Christ, because he has the authority to forgive sins. Now, this is all fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel that, that Peter quoted early in his sermon here in the day of Pentecost when he said, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's why we're not just getting baptized in a sacred pool of water. We're getting baptized in the name of the Lord, the, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in, at, at the very basic, when we go under baptism, into baptism, it states to the world, I place my trust in Jesus Christ. I make my appeal to God, to the Father, for the forgiveness of sins in him and in him alone. I surrender myself to Jesus, who is my Lord. All of that is being said in baptism. Now, there are several things that the Bible 
kind of helps us to understand that are all part of the nuance and the, the meaning that explodes out of the sacrament of baptism. And I'm just going to run through them very, very quickly. And I'm sorry if this feels like a lecture, but a lot of us are a little biblical illiterate. And we really don't even know what baptism means. We just know we're supposed to do it. So I'm trying to help answer that question. One of the things that happens in baptism, very much still happens today, is that when we undergo baptism, particularly as adults uh, or young people who make a public profession of faith, uh, we're changing flags, okay? Uh, when Peter, and this is so relevant in this setting in first century Jerusalem. When Peter tells the citizens of Jerusalem to repent and to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, he is challenging them not only to turn from their sins, but to identify themselves as those under the rule and the kingdom of their Messiah, King Jesus. I mean, it, it's literally, be baptized is to be fully identified with him. Uh, it's one thing to feel a certain way about Jesus. It's an, quite another to go public with your commitment. And this public sacrament of baptism was such a strong association with Jesus. It was such a big deal, that and the Lord's Supper, that the critics of Christianity teased them and, and mocked them by calling them Christians. They, it would be the equivalent of calling them crazy Jesus freaks, to which the early believers said, I'll take that title gladly. I'll die for that. Very, very compelling. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, often referred to as the Prince of Preachers, said that up until the time he was baptized, he was unable to publicly confess his faith in Christ. Thereafter, after his baptism, he lost all fear of man and never again hesitated to boldly profess his faith. He likened his baptism to, quote, crossing the Rubicon or burning the boats. No retreat was possible after that, nor have I ever wanted to go back to the world from which... I then came out. A lot of people, especially in, in, in the first century, baptism was leaving one thing and entering into another. It was the, the old is gone, the new has come. And that language is quite often used. Now, in many countries, many countries, I mean, if you think about the underground church in Iran, specifically, I've read a lot of stories about the underground church in Iran. You know, they, they can read a Bible. They can get together and talk about the Bible without too much fear of persecution. But the moment that they undergo baptism, the gloves are off. They can be arrested for that. Baptism is the point of demarcation. When they are baptized, a lot of times it happens in, in people's bathtubs. It happens out in the river at night. But it, it can cost them their lives. And that has always been the context of baptism. When you read the New Testament, that was always the context of baptism. It might mean that you were completely cut off from your family or that you literally could be arrested, imprisoned, tortured, and killed. Baptism one day may cost all of us more than we ever imagined as well. Now, there's also just this clear identification with Jesus in baptism, not just in a believer's baptism in a very public way, but in a familial sense as well. Uh, as Presbyterian, we, we're part of what we call the Reformed tradition. And the Reformed tradition emphasizes baptism as our identification with Jesus, just as circumcision served as our, the identification with Abraham. All right? So here's the text that that's based out of, uh, Colossians 2. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. How? Because he is the head over all rule and authority, and in him... You were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, 
listen, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So you can see how Paul sets up this Jewish understanding of circumcision, which was kind of the rite of passage. It happened with children, uh, male children and so on. But it was the, the sign and seal of you're a child of Abraham. And then he moves that into you have been brought into Christ through your baptism. So that understanding of the movement from uh, of the identifying marker of the Jew of circumcision to the identifying marker of Christians as baptized is a huge deal. Uh, so it's one of the reasons why uh, we'll see later in Acts that conversion in the first century often led to the whole family being baptized. And we would expect that in a Middle Eastern culture where they thought in terms of us instead of kind of our Harper Western individuality that always begins with I. Everything's kind of about me individually. In the Eastern world, it's about us. And so there was a familial, corporate identifying with Christ that would happen in baptism. It's one of the reasons that the Reformed tradition holds infant baptism so highly, that it's, it's a familial, uh, a family's identity with Christ and the church that happens through the baptism of the infant and then confirmed upon their public profession of faith later when they are of age and, and are willing to stand publicly and confirm the baptismal vows made on, beh- on their behalf when they were children. It's the communal, familial identity with Christ through baptism in place of circumcision, if that makes any sense. I hope that does. Now, uh, I'm going to hit a few others real quickly. Baptism marks our unity in Christ. It's one of the most unifying factors of the large universal church with a capital C. Uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, different expressions of Christianity and all the different denominations in Eastern Orthodox and Catholics and Protestants. But baptism, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, for the forgiveness of sins of Jesus Christ, that is a very unifying factor that pretty near every single expression of Christianity holds to. So it's a very strong unifying factor of the church. Some of the imagery, you heard it previously, I'll point it out one more time, death and resurrection and baptism. This is one of the, it's, it's easier to see this when people are immersed and then they come up, but this was, you know, common in the river. And Paul talks about it. He says in Romans 6, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life, for we have been become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly then we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So when we think about this aspect of baptism, a lot of times uh, you'll hear about the, the old man and the rising of the new man. The old is gone, the new has come. Uh, there is that that picture that happens particularly in the immersion baptism. But if it's true in immersion baptism, it's just true. That's what baptism means. And when we cling to our baptism, it's I'm not who I was. <laughs> you know, I'm not who I was. I am baptized. I've been covered by the blood of Christ. It's part of your identity, but it's the death and the resurrection. Paul talks about that when he says in Galatians I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That is pictured in baptism. All right. Now, finally, you heard this, and we'll unpack it further next week, but P 
Peter says in our text for today, he says, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of, of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Now there's always a connection between baptism and the Holy Spirit, the washing and the sanctification that happens that's represented in baptism in the washing of the water and the purification of water, but it is the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Titus 3, Paul writes, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Here's the picture. Washing, pouring, cleansing through the Holy Spirit, represented in baptism, there's always a connection. Peter says, you know, repent, be baptized, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. However, sometimes, and this is where people start arguing, but a lot of times they'll think, well, so it's when we are baptized that we receive the Holy Spirit. There's not a linear association there. It sounds like that in one text, but as we go further on to Acts, we'll see that the Holy Spirit comes upon certain believers before they're baptized, and then the Holy Spirit comes upon certain believers after they're baptized. There's always association, baptism in the Holy Spirit, but it's not linear. Nod your heads if you're still awake. Okay. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm done with all the teaching about what it means. I'm just going to conclude this message with three warnings about baptism. Warnings. All right. Warning number one. Be careful not to think of baptism as a prerequisite for salvation. That, that would be an error, I believe, biblically and doctrinally. Uh, my friend Hank Hanegraaff says it this way. While the mode of baptism is not essential to salvation, in other words, going through baptism is not essential to salvation, the mandate of baptism is essential to obedience. And that, that's a great way to think about it. Simply stated, to follow Jesus in obedience is to be baptized. He did not make that optional for some of us and, and a prerequisite for others. He just said, be baptized. And then he told us, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus led by example by submitting himself to baptism. And the Holy Spirit came and said, you know, from God said, this is my son. I'm really proud. That's very pleased, right? So he showed us by example we are to follow him in the baptism. But we should not think of baptism uh, as a prerequisite to salvation. When the criminal next to Jesus on the cross called him Lord in, in humble repentance and faith, Jesus looked at him and said, today... You'll be with me in paradise. What is he saying? He's saying that that'll do it. There, there was no opportunity for baptism, nor was it a prerequisite for this man to enter into salvation through Jesus, faith in Jesus Christ. So it's faith in Jesus Christ that leads us into salvation, not our baptism. It's not a prerequisite. So some people would say, well, why should we bother getting baptized if it's not required to enter heaven? And the simple answer is, we undergo baptism because Jesus is our king and baptism is a direct order from our sovereign Lord. Just as our unwillingness to, just as our willingness to undergo baptism shows the world that we're submitting to King Jesus and we love him, our unwillingness to go through baptism may very well reflect the heart of rebelling against the kingship of Christ. Jesus said many times, if you love me, do what I commanded you to do. Baptism tells the whole world, we love Jesus. And if nothing else, through our obedience, right? Here's my second warning. Avoid theological polarization around the sacrament of baptism. 
This coming from a guy who went to a, a Presbyterian seminary as a diehard Southern Baptist. It was my favorite fight. Uh, if you're wired like me, you like to wade around in the doctrines of the church. If, it won't take you very long to get sucked into the Bermuda Triangle of baptism debates. Seminarians love to debate infant baptism, immersion versus sprinkling, the salvific value of baptism versus the symbolic value of baptism. Listen, here's my advice. In most cases, you should avoid going there with people you disagree with because those arguments typically don't lead to fruit, uh, spiritual fruit. In, in other words, please refrain from uh, kind of bashing the Catholics or the Baptists or others who might practice or interpret baptism differently than we do here at Colonial. Nothing good comes from these squabbles. Instead, work to preserve the unity of the church by finding the essential commonality shared by all expressions of Christ's body when it comes to baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus Christ. Number three, do not overestimate the power of baptism and do not underestimate the power of baptism. All right, here's what I mean by that. We overestimate the power of baptism if we think that the sacrament itself somehow affects change upon the person being baptized in the sense that their baptism saves them or somehow cleanses them from sin. The saving and the cleansing happens through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Only Jesus saves and only the Holy Spirit cleanses. The waters of baptism do neither. Baptism points to the power. It is not the source of the power. Are you with me? All right. However, we underestimate the power of baptism if we think of it as a photo shoot and a quaint tradition of the church. And quite frankly, you know, in my experience in many churches throughout the years, I mean, a lot of times it kind of looks like that, especially with the infant baptism where, you know, we dress them all up and it's kind of a, a ceremonial little picture opportunity and we don't really think there's any power there. That, that would be a huge mistake. Listen, something, this is why in, in, in our church we call it a sacrament. Sacrament literally means a mystery. And Richard Platt, who's a Reformed theologian, really kind of helps us unpack that in a really cerebral, Reformed way. Here, here's what he says. He says, there is in every sacrament a spiritual relation, a sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified. Once it comes to pass, that the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other. He says it a little bit more clearly later on. He says, Reformed theology concurs with Scripture that there is more than meets the eye in the rite of baptism. Spiritual realities occur in conjunction with baptism, but the Scriptures do not explain in detail how baptism and divine grace are connected. So Reformed theology speaks of the connection as a sacramental, i.e. mysterious, union. If you can hold on to that tension, you will have a better appreciation of New Testament baptism. Here's what I mean by that. Just, just common sense. Jesus would have never commanded all believers to be baptized if there was not power, meaning, and indelible value associated with that act. The truth is, wherever, I mean, after I've showed you all these scriptures and told you basically what the scriptures point to, it doesn't unpack it in such a way as we know exactly what happens to the person when they've undergone baptism. And so it remains some degree of a mystery. Now, I'm going to tell you that I personally believe something very powerful happens during baptism in the spirit realm. 
I am not alone in believing that baptism marks us with an invisible seal, almost like a certain tattoo marks those who have served in the special forces. If we had eyes to see what happens in the spiritual realm that is going on all around us, we would likely recognize the seal of Christ upon each person who has undergone baptism. Now, I have often heard or read stories of spiritual power encounters on the mission field and and quite frankly, even right here in our community, when an evil spirit recognizes the baptized Christian as one who is covered or protected by the power of God. When our repentance and faith are sincere, when we undergo the waters of baptism, either as an infant or an adult, I think it is reasonable to believe that God marks us as his own. We are marked by his claim, his name, his grace, And his power is on us. Now, we can't see it. And the world out there can't usually see it. But there are others in the spiritual realm who can. And of that, I'm quite certain. I actually count on that seal. I count on that seal of my baptism every time I step into a room where I know there's evil. Every time I step into a country where I know there is great hostility towards the cross of Jesus Christ, I count on the seal of my baptism. I literally say these things to myself. No matter how daunting the situation, I muster up my courage and I claim my identity. I am a baptized child of God, set apart by my baptism in the name of Jesus Christ, covered by his blood, empowered by his Holy Spirit, and my soul cannot be touched by the flaming arrows of the adversary. I am a loyal subject to my king, a citizen of the kingdom of God, and therefore I am entitled to all the privileges and protections that are promised to me by my king and those who serve him. Thus, I am not afraid, not because of my strength, not because I am strong, no, but because the one who lives in me is stronger than the one who rules in the world. Baptism is anything but unimportant. So, if you are convicted of God's truth as found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, what should you do? Repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. More on that next Sunday. Let's pray. Lord, it is a powerful thing, your word and your promises and and even this act of obedience, of, of undergoing, of submitting ourselves to baptism, that we might be marked as your children, as citizens of your kingdom, that our names might be written in the book of life. And Lord, we don't know the mystery of how all that works, but it's powerful. It's indelible. It is why you commanded each of us to follow you into baptism. And I pray even now that if there's even one soul within the sound of my voice who, who is convicted, cut to the heart by the truth of the gospel, that he or she would submit to the words in your word. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.